As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. You would call yourself an atheist? I would, yes. I would call myself a Christian humanist. One of the big themes over the history of what we now think of as science has been questioning the exceptionalism of humankind. I think the critical thing is what gives something value. Would you say that minds construct meaning or detect meaning? I have had made from a little piece of my arm something that could reasonably be called a second brain. I think one of the real challenges that evolution by natural selection puts to Christian belief is the idea that Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians, skeptics and everyone in between talking. I'm Peter Byram and today we're very excited to be able to bring you the next episode of Season 5 of The Big Conversation. And after all of the travails and restrictions that we had during Covid and lockdown, and the fact that we had to record Seasons 3 and 4 of The Big Conversation mostly online, it is great to be back face to face in the studio this time. So. Do check out the video of the discussion as well, it looks absolutely fantastic. Today's show is an in-depth discussion on the question of science versus religion. Are they really as conflicting as so many people believe? And we will be delving into a very particular question which both of our guests believe is at the core of this tension. What does it mean to be human? How does science and religion answer this fundamental question? We're going to be hearing from atheist science writer and broadcaster Philip Ball and Christian author Nick Spencer, who is a fellow at Theos, the religious think tank in London. Those of you who are long-time followers of The Big Conversation will recognise Nick Spencer from the very first season where he debated science, humanism and faith with atheist philosopher Stephen Pinker. If you haven't signed up yet to our newsletter at thebigconversation.show, then now is the time to do so because one of the many exclusive pieces of bonus content that you'll receive is the ebook edition of that debate. You'll also gain access to hours of extra video content and more ebooks too. Plus, you will get special advance access to new episodes of The Big Conversation. Sign up and we will send you new episodes a whole week ahead of their scheduled release date. And the next Big Conversation episode is not far away. In fact, stick around till the end of the show and I'm going to play you a sneak preview clip of it. So, sign up now at thebigconversation.show. Finally, when you've listened to their conversation, tell us whose arguments you found the most persuasive or what you thought by filling out our brief, multi-choice survey which is linked in the notes with the podcast and the video of today's show. We'd love to hear what you thought. So, without further ado, it's time for Episode 3 of The Big Conversation Season 5. 
Hello and welcome to the big conversation from Premier Unbelievable, brought to you in partnership with the John Templeton Foundation. I am your host, Andy Kind. The big conversation is all about conversations around the topics of science, faith, philosophy and culture, bringing together, as it does, some of the brightest and most ardent thinkers from across the belief spectrum. Well, today we are looking at the subject of what does it mean to be human? Can science and or religion tell us anything about that? And there's a common belief, perhaps, that uh, science and religion are in fundamental conflict, coming to different conclusions about what the world is and what it means to be human. But is that really the case? And uh, do we need to rethink some of our preconceived ideas around that? Well, joining me today to help me definitively answer this question are Philip Ball and Nick Spencer. Hello, chaps. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Philip Ball is a freelance writer and broadcaster who writes regularly in the scientific and popular media and has authored many books on the interaction of the sciences, the arts and the wider culture. His latest book is The Book of Minds, a survey of the varieties of minds that do and might exist. And in conversation with Philip Ball today is Nick Spencer. Nick is Senior Fellow at Theos, and he's no stranger to the big conversation, having debated Stephen Pinker in season one. He is the author of a number of books, his most recent book being Magisteria, The Entangled Histories of Science and Religion. So, welcome, both of you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And uh, I do want to definitively solve the riddle of whether science and religion <laughs> can answer what it means to be That would be human. nice. Um, both your books are magnificent. You're both magnificent thinkers. What I'd like to do in this first section is to start with that question of the conflict between science and religion. And for some people, maybe there's this idea that this is the, this is the age-old debate, that science and religion are like the two old firm enemies engaged in some kind of turf war. But Nick, you believe that actually the idea of a fundamental conflict is quite a modern invention, isn't it? And you talk about the debate being like a swimming pool with most of the noise up in the Mm. shallow end. Mm. So can you talk to that a little bit? Yes, it is relatively modern. It dates really from the last third of the 19th century. If you were to scroll back a couple of hundred years and say to people, science and religion are in conflict, they simply wouldn't have understood what you were talking about, quite apart from anything else, because science and religion are relatively modern terms, at least in the way we use them today. At the end of the 19th century, uh, an American chemist, he was born in Britain, but he migrated to the US, became a very eminent chemist, but he also considered himself to be something of an intellectual historian, a guy called John Draper. And he wrote a history of science and religion, and he understood the entirety of centuries of engagement between science and religion through a very contemporary lens. And there were various issues around America, Catholicism, Protestantism, evolution at the end of the 19th century, which meant that this was a time of some tension between these two disciplines, if you like. And he understood that as being typical of the entirety of the history of science and religion and almost retold the whole story as if it was leading up to what he was experiencing at the time. And it was a very popular story at the time. There was another book published 20 years later that told a similar kind of story. It was popularised in scientific um, sort of magazines. And the narrative stuck. And it partly stuck because then in the 20th century, fundamentalism 
emerged mm -hmm. with its aversion to Darwinian evolution. And it's with us today. The survey we did at Theos a couple of years ago looked at the fact that something like 60% of people in the UK, adults in the UK, think there's a fundamental tension between science and religion, roughly twice as many as think they're compatible. So there's a really pervasive narrative going on there. And then you've got figures like Galileo, haven't you, who've been sort of co-opted by these different factions. Is that overdone? Was he the sacrificial lamb that uh, he's purported to be? It's a bit overdone. Uh, it's very important not to move from one simplistic narrative of conflict between science and religion all the way to another simplistic narrative, which is, well, it was all harmony in Eden, mm. and, and it certainly wasn't all the time, and Galileo was the classic example of that. The way he has become an icon of a conflict between these entities of science and these abstract entities of science and religion is disingenuous. He, he, he was threatened with torture by the Inquisition. He was um, banished to a rather nice villa in, in, in Tuscany for the last eight years of his life. He was forbidden to write on the subject. His book was put on the index of prohibited books. So there was a real problem there. But it was a very much more complex problem than the myth of Galileo, which was subsequently picked up by Protestants and used as anti-Catholic propaganda allowed. There were big intellectual issues around the shift away from Aristotelianism at the time. There were large social and political issues, and there were personal issues involved as well, such as Galileo's initial friendship, but then turned enmity, really, with the guy who became Pope. So there is a story of tension there, but it's not quite the simplistic, iconic story that Protestants first and then secularists subsequently made it out to be. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, Philip, you have reviewed Nick's book, in a very lovely way, if you don't mind me uh, saying. And you talk, as, uh, you talk of religion as being the midwife to science. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? There, there are various ways that one can make that argument. And I think that you could see, certainly as far as Christianity is concerned, you can see the, uh, the origins of that start to emerge in the 12th century. Um, where there was a, a strong belief at that point in, I mean, as Nick said, Aristotle was the big philosopher uh, throughout most of the, the Middle Ages, but there was also a Platonic movement. People uh, uh, were very influenced by what Plato thought. And Plato had a very geometric view of the universe. And Plato believed that there, it was created, there was a creator, but um, his idea was that it was created from a sort of geometric perspective that there was harmony um, in the in the order of nature mm -hmm. and this idea can be seen to underpin what really emerged during the gothic age and in fact some people would argue that gothic cathedrals are an expression of this idea that the universe is coherent it's not something that is just you know made and governed at the whim of god it has order and logic to it just as the cathedrals are you know they're incredibly ordered and logical and they make uh, use of particular proportions mm. that are platonic proportions and so they're almost an embodiment of the belief that the universe can be understood mm. by us that there are rules to it there are laws to it and we can understand them and this is something that was very strongly believed and developed at, in particular, the school, mm. the cathedral school of Chartres. 
Um, uh, so there are a lot of thinkers then who I think really, uh, until you have that belief, until you have the belief that the, the universe is coherent and orderly, you can't even begin to think mm. about doing science you know, because there is, it, it, it's just, you know, there's nothing there to be that we can discover. It's all down to the whim of God. So I think that was the, the you know, the beginnings of it. Yeah. But then certainly if we, if we go through to the age, really just after the age of, of, of Galileo, um, although Galileo was part of this as well but there was so this is really the 17th century what's often talked about as the scientific revolution um, it was the age when the Royal Society was formed it was the age when it started to become acceptable to ask all kinds of questions about nature mm. curiosity at that point started to change from what had previously been regarded with suspicion trying to sort of know too much mm. about the universe to being a virtue mm. that it was actually a positive virtue to ask questions about the physical world and this was very much the position that those early you know we think of them as sort of proto-scientists those early scientific thinkers people like robert boyle robert hook and isaac newton mm. um uh that, that they were that they were encouraging and their view, and particularly it was the view of Robert Boyle, who was one of the key figures in the Royal Society. Mm. He was an Anglo-Irish uh, scientist, as we think of him now. His view was very much that mm. it was actually a duty of people like him, of you know what we now think of as scientists, to ask these questions mm. about nature and to understand as much as we could about what God had created. It was a religious duty to do that. And yeah. Boyle was, was, was you know, a, a strong advocate of that yeah. point of view. And it was one that was very widely shared yeah. at the time that doing science was almost literally a devotional act. Yeah. So that, too, created a, a spur, really, for people to start asking questions about the universe, that you were asking questions about God's creation. And that's what I'm trying to get to, trying to understand where the Venn diagrams overlap. And already we're understanding that we don't have a West Side Story standoff between the Jets and the Sharks. So science and religion are siblings, perhaps. Nick, what do you think about that? Is there, is there a way of having a cosy collusion well i wouldn't use the metaphor of siblings but one of the metaphors that i played about with in one of the drafts of the book was that almost as if science again anachronistic term we're talking about experimental natural philosophy they might have referred to it in the 17th century was almost like a child of certain christian thought and it was nurtured mm. in this environment it's very important to emphasize that in science is self-evidently successful as far as we're concerned mm -hmm. in the late 17th century it wasn't so there's a brilliant satire on gulliver's travels by jonathan swift in which he visits the i think it's the grand academy of legado and they it's a satire on the royal society and they're conducting these experiments that are self-evidently as far as swift is concerned ridiculous and so why mm. are you bothering to weigh air mm. Why, why, are you, why are you literally torturing animals to see how long they can survive by pumping air through their lungs while you dismember them? These, are, these were extraordinary experiments, and they were mocked and ridiculed at the time. But as Phil rightly said, there was a significant stream of thought which said that they're there because you are studying God's creation. And by mm. studying God's creation, you're somehow honouring God. Mm. And so remarkably, some of these late 17th century Protestants said, well, actually, you can do science, you can do natural philosophy on the Sabbath. Now, that's a big deal for a Protestant at the time, because the Sabbath 
is the time for rest. Mm. But their argument is this is a contemplation of God's creation. Yeah. And it's not just resting on outward contemplation, you're getting into it. And so it's an appropriate activity, it's a form of worship mm -hmm. almost, to the extent, and this will horrify some people, to the extent that they said science is one of the activities we're going to do in heaven because this is a kind of glorification of who God is and what God has done. And it's just important to recognise that, particularly at a time when science is, as it were, very new, very young, still living at home, hasn't got its own independence, hasn't got its own legs, and is questioned by a lot of people. What if you're not... What if you want to go to heaven, but you're not good at science? I, mean, that, I would fall into that category. I'm hoping just to walk around the woods and fish for a bit. That's enough. That's enough. You, can study, you can study them if you want to, but you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're allowed in if you're just wondering. That's that. great. But So we've already got these two areas of, of overlap, science and religion, Christianity in, in this case. Both require a belief in the orderedness of the universe, and both require a curious mind. Do you think that's... Correct, Philip? Absolutely, yes. Um, and, you know, as I say, I think it was the liberation of curiosity that happened around what we now commonly think of as the birth of modern science as we know it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this idea then, isn't there, that they are, uh, and I think it was Stephen Gould who termed, who coined this phrase, the idea of uh, non-overlapping magisteria. Your book is called Magisteria, Nick, but you don't believe that they are non-overlapping magisteria. No, it's too neat. Really, I mean, um, Gould, in a paper and then a book at the end of the 90s, came up with this idea that they're um, different, discrete, separate magisteria or kind of teaching disciplines, if you like, and that they didn't overlap because science was about facts, religion was about values, mm -hmm. very simplistically. Now, you know, it's not an atrocious idea. It's got something going for it, but it's far too neat and, 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 and far too kind of... Um, tidy a way of separating the two because when you're dealing with a great many things in life not least the kind of things that are sitting around this table human beings mm -hmm. you can't separate facts and values in that in that ready way so Gould is doing it effectively to say the alternative view that they are competing explanations of material reality is not right mm -hmm. and in that regard he's correct but he as it were almost goes to the other end of the spectrum and says not only they're not competing but they've got nothing whatsoever to do with one another mm -hmm. and that's not certainly not his true historically and I don't think it's true normatively either yeah so again we talked about the idea that um, Christianity is the, the midwife to science that doesn't make it the biological parent does it Philip so it, is it the case that or is it the case that science needs to come home to its biological parent or is it okay to set up on its own as long as it comes home at Christmas and calls from time to time <laughs> well i think what we could see happening as really from this period from the 17th century as science began to flourish began to investigate and understand more and more about the world for anyone who believed that god was actively uh intervening in creation keeping things on the road as it were or that even a god that set things up in a certain way you know at the beginning there seemed less and less for that sort of god to do mm. because we could we could elucidate more and more natural explanations for all of that 
And I think this was part of the, you know, the, the, the mounting tension that if you believed in that sort of God, and I, there's, it, it's not necessarily the case that yeah. a believer has to. Um, and in fact, you know, there is a, a question about whether that sort of creator yeah. God or that interventionist God is the right sort of God to believe in. But if you do, then there, the, the problems are going to mount up yeah. because, you know, you end up with what people talk about as a God of the gaps, yeah. that all God can do is to kind of do the things that science hasn't yet been able to explain. And this is often the position of scientists who challenge religion, that they you know, are, are, are saying that you know, it's, it's just that science hasn't got to these difficult yeah. questions yet. One day it will, and then there's nothing for God to do. So why, why do we need him? Um, so that's really the, 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 the yeah. tension that was starting to arise. But I think that the, the great point also that Nick makes in, in his book is that there's also, also the issue, and really this is, I think, the central issue of authority, of mm. who has the right to pronounce on why things are the way they are. And that is actually something that, that goes back much further. That's something that we see as a flashpoint even you know, during the Middle Ages, yeah. for example. Um, you know, there was in the 13th century, famously, a, 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 an argument about whether Aristotle is the ultimate authority on the physical world or whether the Bible and God is. Um, so I think that's an older and a persisting tension yeah. Who has the right, ultimately, who has the final word on why things are the way they are? So really, we've got this perceived conflict between science and religion, but it's not really about the cosmos. It's not about fine-tuning. It's not about neurons. It's about humanity, because both of these magisteria have something to say on what it means to be human. So I think you've always got to be careful to say it's not about something, because that implies that actually this was just an illusion and the real battle was here. It, it, you know, sometimes people did disagree about this. They disagreed about the interpretation of Scripture. They disagreed about the age of the earth. They disagreed about... But what you tended to find was that those disagreements were often resolved relatively quickly with not too much blood spilt... Mm -hmm. But there were certain underlying tensions that persisted. And Phil's absolutely rightly picked up one about authority. The story about Paris in the 13th century is great because it effectively turns out, when you look at the document history, to be a, a, a turf war between the philosophy faculty and the theology faculty. Yeah. And the theologians didn't like the philosophers coming in and saying, basically, that theology doesn't teach you anything. Yeah. And, and, and so there are kind of other kind of tensions going on there. But going back to where we started the conversation with the perception of a tension between science and religion really emerged in the 19th century. Yeah. That's very much about authority. Beginning of the 19th mm. century, you want to find someone doing science or natural philosophy, you'll probably, in this country at least, find them in an Anglican rectory. They will be ordained, they will be theologically educated, they will be very interested in the natural world, and they'll be conducting some serious, maybe not experiments, but observations. Mm. Scroll forward 50, 70 years or so, and science is increasingly become professionalised and autonomous and validated by other concerns other than whether you're an Anglican cleric from Oxford and Cambridge. The Anglican clerics didn't like that. That was a loss of status and authority. So much of the tension was around the shifting balance of authority and who had the right to pronounce, firstly, on the nature of the natural world. Yeah. Well, science won out, no problem with that one but critically on the nature of the human. And that's when things did kick off. That's absolutely fantastic. And we're going to go on to talk about the human mind and what is a mind and how do we decide and do we mind what a mind is and, and, and all of that. 
But it's fantastic that we've got these areas of, of overlap on a personal level, because you do come at it from different perspectives. Where, and it's a question to both of you as we go towards our break, where are the areas between the two of you, for instance, where there is a, a contrast to belief, where there is maybe a sort of breach <laughs> in, in one's thinking? We need to work on this, Nick, don't we? Because <laughs> we, we haven't really much, found we one. We read, we read <laughs> too much. I mean, you know, I feel you would call yourself an atheist. I would, yes. I would call myself a Christian humanist, but I wouldn't want to put those two, two words together. Um, so there's going to be some different conception there on, you know, certainly the status of revelation, I guess, the existence of God. Um, but it's important to recognise that you can be on different sides of that particular fence mm -hmm. and yet uh, engage positively and actually agree quite a lot on some of the things you talk about. Mm. I mean, I think what I have found is, is, is no reason within science to object to belief. There's nothing, I, you know, I have yet to really find a conflict. I mean, there are, it, of course, it depends on your expression of religious belief. And yeah. it's not hard to find, you know, expressions of religious belief that absolutely do conflict with certain areas of science. Yeah. And that's a very selective one. And often it does center around the human and around, of, of course, evolution. Yeah. Um, and you know, there are arguments made that it also centers around questions of origins and the origin of life and the origin of, of the universe. Personally, I think that it's becoming more and more clear that that's a, that's a false argument that there's there's really uh, and it's it's clear simply from the fact that there are religious believers who um uh, uh, totally accept you know the cosmology that we have yeah. there's there's no reason to see fundamental conflict there um but yeah i think questions around what it means to be human where what the source of our values are those are more difficult areas um but, you know, this is from my own experience. I, just, I, I haven't yet encountered a reason why science need undermine belief. Yeah. And is that the same for you in reverse, Nick? Uh, it is, although, um, you know, I, I, I think it's really important for religious believers to be um, very honest about this. And um, I guess one way of looking at it is that the whole thing is like a massive jigsaw puzzle, really. And there are lots and lots and lots of very small pieces. And your, 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 your kind of task as, as a believer is to, and indeed not believer, you know, is, is, is to try and fit them together. You've not got a picture on the box. You've got to work out how these different pieces go together. Now, for the most part, I think they do fit together. But at the same time, I find myself in certain, as it were, areas of the jigsaw well, they don't fit together. Mm. Let me put, as, 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 a, as a provocation, as it were, to my own side. I think one of the real challenges that evolution by natural selection puts to Christian belief is the idea that pain and suffering seems to be built into the fabric of things. Now, I know there are arguments against that, and I've heard them, and I respect them, but I, I, I'm, I'm still uneasy about that. I don't have a problem with origins. I don't have a problem with so, so many things that Christians in the past have had a problem with evolution. I don't think they're... Um, why? But I do think, you know, there are certain scientific, there are certain ideas, if you like, that, 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 that spin off from scientific theories that can present a, a, a challenge to religious belief and need to be acknowledged as such. Yeah. Well, we're talking here at The Big Conversation about science and religion, where they overlap and whether either of them can tell us what it means to be human. My guests are Philip Ball and Nick Spencer, and we'll be back after this short break. 
before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to the big conversation with me, your host, Andy Kind. And today my guests are Nick Spencer and Philip Ball, and we are talking about what it means to be human. And I do really want to get this sorted definitively over the next hour or so. But the big question is, can science and religion speak to that uh, question? And Nick, one thing that you're keen for people not to do is to get these two things muddled up. There are areas of overlap, but you would say, I imagine, that religion is about meaning whereas science is about mechanism and when people confuse physics for metaphysics they're they're doing it wrong broadly yes although both of those terms science and religion are massive amorphous sprawling terms any attempt to come up with a definition a clear definition is always going to fail that's as a guide that's not bad mm. but the devil is always in the detail and you say you say in your book that the magisteria being science and religion are indistinct sprawling untidy and fascinatingly entangled a bit like headphone wires used to be before bluetooth uh my headphone wires are all the time sorry you've you've hit one of my buttons oh my there entropy exists whenever you put headphones in a pocket sorry enough well no i feel like we've we've really latched onto something here that i'd like to unpack <laughs> if you ever do a second edition you should put that sentence I in will. you can quote me at, at, at the end um so then it's a question isn't it of what does it mean to be human and where is that located so again i don't want to offend you by asking you this philip but where is humanity located in the person i think one of the big themes that we can see over the history of what we now think of as science has been about questioning the uh, exceptionalism of humankind. Um, it's, it, it was clearly there at, at the outset. I mean, it's, you know, one could imagine that it's clearly there um, in religious texts which suggest that there's something special about humanity there is something we were created as you know a special sort of entity mm. with guardianship of the world if you like um it was certainly there in with the way aristotle thought about uh living organisms that he argued that we alone we humans alone have a rational soul um that that allows us reason as well as just movement mm. and 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 what we see in in animals it was there in the 17th century with descartes um who regarded to some extent both humans and other animals as machines mm -hmm. 
but humans were special because again we had a soul that whereas other other animals were just mechanical things in the end um so you know there there seemed to have been this insistence that in some way or another humans have to be exceptional once you have and this was perhaps why the uh, darwin's theory of evolution you know is is perceived to create so many complications because it insists on a continuity of humans and other animals that we evolved in the same way from the same uh, uh, progenitors and so it really challenges that idea um and if you believe that that's so then that applies also to questions of the human mind and i think in a way it feels to me like that's almost the last bastion of this exceptionalism that i think to some extent you know persisted until the 20th century um and that's really what i wanted to challenge and to open up in 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 my book because i i think particularly in the past several decades where we have had better techniques and better uh, that give us better understanding of the minds and i think we need to think of them as minds of non-human animals we can see more continuity we can see more points of overlap we can start to say more about how those similarities might have evolved and what they might have evolved from so we, there's almost a sort of genealogy of minds what well, there literally is as well as a genealogy of our physical form and what i try to do in the book is to say one way to think about that is to think in terms of a space of possible minds because it's broader than that and in, you know another reason why we're thinking about this now is because of artificial intelligence mm. and it's forcing us to think well is that a kind of mind could it be a kind of mind is there continuity with ours or is it an entirely separate yeah. thing another reason is that we're starting to think uh and not just to think but actually to observe and perhaps even experiment in terms of extraterrestrial life mm. um and could there be you know extraterrestrial intelligence and what is the nature of that kind of mind yeah. can we say anything about it so i talk about there being a space of possible minds as a kind of a conceptual space for thinking about this problem and again th that ends up challenging our exceptionalism that i argue that we are somewhere we are a cloud of points in fact because we don't all have you know we have each have a unique mind they're different kinds of minds um but there is a cloud of points somewhere in that space we don't know what the coordinates are but somewhere in that space that corresponds to humans somewhere else there will be um other primate minds chimpanzee minds probably very close probably the degree of overlap there is you know the minds of birds in particular i think are spread quite widely over yeah. that space birds have extraordinarily uh, diverse cognitive yeah. attributes um somewhere further away perhaps we have to think about the minds of octopuses which are fascinating things that, and i've almost never done that well then this is the time to start yeah. and in fact i mean and but have actually, you done that nick how do you mean? Thought about octopus minds. Well, I mean, octopuses fascinate me because they are separated from us by something like 500 million years of evolution. Longer still, about, yeah, about 600. And I say that because it's before the Cambrian explosion. So it uh, goes way back to very, very simple organisms. They diverged very early on. So they're almost as close as we're going to get on Earth to 
seeing aliens, if you, if you like, fair? That's, that's what the, the philosopher of mine, Peter Godfrey Smith, has talked about yeah. them in that way. And that's because, you know, they, they are, I mean, he says they're, a, if you like, a separate evolutionary experiment in how to build a mind. And physiologically, they're very different from ours. So, you know, if you look at a bird or if you look at a rodent, you know, they have a brain that has features that are more or less similar to ours. If you look at the brains of octopuses, they, they really don't. They, they, they look totally bizarre. They, for one thing, uh, more than half of the neurons of uh, an octopus aren't in the central brain, in the head. They're distributed through the body. And there are clumps of them in each of the, the eight limbs, the, the eight arms, that seem to have a degree of autonomy. autonomy. So the, the arms sort of work of their own accord it's almost like and perhaps it literally is like they are making decisions by themselves and perhaps this central you know mind of the octopus is just watching them do things as if they're just other organisms mm. and the mind itself it looks different it has a completely different the brain looks uh, it has a completely different structure um there's a hole through the middle of it where the feeding tube goes which is kind of weird like the brain was an afterthought wow. so they're very very different and uh, there's you know a lot of discussion about what sorts of mind these creatures have so that's one you know particular example that has really opened up this question of what a mind can be and i think it really challenges this long-standing notion we see actually in the in the the way the philosophy of, yeah. of mind has been talked about until very recently this long-standing notion that there at least humans are still special now we have to confront the fact that probably not in okay a lot of ways. interesting well nick obviously as a christian humanist you would hold to the idea that humans are special made in the image of god and have a particular value yes. above Octopi? Well, I mean, lots of things going on in, in, in that statement. I think the critical thing is what gives something value. And historically, all too often, Christian believers have got into the habit of thinking something is valued because it is unique, mm -hmm. if you like. So humans are valuable because we're not like anything else. And then other things come along and say, actually, uh, we see they are quite similar. You know, lots of other things very similar to humans. And that kind of almost insecurity mm. is built in you know we're, we're special we're of course we're special and it's a little bit like a toddler having their parents bring home a newborn and for a long time you've you've had you know your parents attention solo in the house and all of a sudden there's this horrible little baby that's very very similar to you and is actually on your patch and you get insecure about it the point is a toddler is not loved by their parents because they're by themselves mm -hmm. they're loved by the parents just because they're loved. Mm -hmm. And I think it's critically important not to mistake the idea that humans might be valuable because they might be different. I, I do think there are differences between humans and, and other species, and I'm very interested to hear Phil's reaction on mm -hmm. this. But f from my point of view, the idea that the human mind is not you know, the only example of a mind that evolution has arrived at is, I think, incredibly important. It seems to suggest to me, and I'm very, again, interested to get Phil's take on this, seems to suggest to me that the very least the potential of mind, as well as the potential for morality, and indeed the potential for metaphysics, is almost built into the fabric of the whole system. So at some point or other, going back to Stephen Jay Gould here, if he were to rewind everything mm -hmm. and then replay the tape of life again, as he said in the more analogue age, we'd get a very different picture, mm -hmm. but you'd get minds again, mm. and you'd get morality again, and you'd perhaps even get metaphysics again. Would you get octopi? Because I'm still thinking about 
what you said, and I'm I'm anxious because I found it terrifying. And is there a chance? Maybe this isn't relevant to the the question of what it means to be human. Is there a chance that ultimately octopi will be our supreme overlords? Well, isn't it interesting that so often that that's our conception of aliens, of, of real aliens. If you think of the, for example, the film Arrival, the, the, you know, mm. there are these octopus-like. And that goes back to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, yes. where his creatures were octopus-like. They were described as having tentacles and a massive head and so on. So already, you know, then there was this perception that there's something alien about octopuses. So they represent something for yeah. us. Um, but, but I think the, w- what... Um, Nick was talking about there in terms of value. Um, One of the things that uh, relativizing minds forces us to do is to ask, well, why minds? What are minds for in the first place? And that's really what I wanted to try to delve into in this book. And what I I suggested there is is that um, minds are... (laughs) In one sense, we we can think of them as ways to escape our genes, Mm -hmm. um, to escape having a pre-programmed response to everything in in our environment. If you have an organism that lives in a very simple, very predictable environment, then it may be enough to just sort of hardwire every response um, so it doesn't have to think about it, yeah. literally. Um, but it's, it, before very long, once you have any sort of complexity, organisms are moving around, they're interacting with each other, they're in an ecosystem, um, then that's not going to work anymore because you can't anticipate what's going to happen. So once life started to become at all complex, as it did right back in the Cambrian era, um, if not before, then that's not going to work. You just have to, you know, you'd have to try to program too much into the genetic response, you know, and you just can't predict it. So the alternative is to make a mind, is to make, uh, you know, this system that is adaptive, that is innovative, that can improvise. I think that's the key. Because you've talked about in one of your talks how memory is really important because it helps us to uh, gauge our future responses. But you would also say, I imagine, that, again, the mind is not simply a score predictor because we actually do have something approaching the idea of the illusion of free will. But we, we we can make a choice contrary to what we would usually do. And the Apostle Paul, of course, says... I don't. I do what I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. So th- there is. How do we? How do we sort of navigate that idea of um, predicting behaviour and also then doing something contrary to that? Well, it, it, there's this. This is very telling passage in. Um, I guess it's in the, the the selfish gene, Richard Dawkins' you know, famous book, which in which he he recognises that we at least seem able to override the as he puts it the dictates of our genes and there's a little sense that maybe he's a little bit outraged at (laughs) our ability to do this but he recognizes that it's the case my point is that it it, it, that was an inevitability once you have complex organisms we need to you know expect that that's going to be so and that 
within that, if you like, we can see the origins of free will is a very complicated term. And it's both of those words are in a way too loaded yeah. to still use. But, you know, it's often talked about now in, in neuroscience as volition. That's a better mm -hmm. word um, that we are somehow self-determining. And that's what minds have to do. They're able to take in the information from our surroundings, but not to respond to it in just like a machine like way where a button is pressed and you do a certain thing but to process and integrate that information with the internal state of the mind which includes memory mm -hmm. and it, that that you know you can see something like that even in the simplest of organisms mm -hmm. um, and as a result of that come up with some kind of response some kind of decision about behavior and in a sense that that's mm. what that's what minds do that's what they're for and you can see that as an adaptive behavior minds clearly must be adaptive they've evolved mm. and so you know what's what's then interesting is that you can see degrees of this emerging throughout the living uh, the, the, the living world from bacteria mm. upwards people now a lot of biologists are saying even simple se single-celled bacteria have to be thought about in cognitive rather than mechanistic terms there's a kind of cognition that's going on certainly by the stage of multi-celled organisms even quite simple ones that's you know you can see cognition there and as you get more and more complex you start to have to think about questions like volition you have to think about decision making and where that comes from and you know what that really is yeah. is that somehow predetermined is there somehow an inevitability in there and if not where does the the freeness yeah. of that response come from in the mind yeah. and there's absolutely no reason to think that somehow by magic it yeah. appeared in the in the evolution between the ancestors of uh, of us and apes yeah. and us now. Yeah. Um, you know, it probably goes further back than that. So it opens up these questions that I think really do get into theological territory about free will and about determination. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, we really are on the open plains of discussion yeah. now, aren't we? Uh, but you talked about Descartes, and obviously he managed to reduce things to first principles, his first principle being, I think, therefore I am. Essentially, I am a mind, <laughs> and that's as much as I, as I know. Nick, as a sort of as someone coming from a Christian perspective, if we take the evolutionary theory of creation as, as being true, is there then any kind of consensus within Christian thought of how, why, and at what point the human mind spliced off from sort of the animal mind and took the road less travelled? No is the short answer, because okay, I, don't, I don't think, you know, I mean, Christians will comment on this, but if they do, they're going to be commenting on it as, as, as philosophers, as, mm -hmm. as, as scientists whose thought is informed by their faith, but you, you can't read mm -hmm. this off scripture, you can't read this off theology, it's part of a, a, a wise discussion. I think it's important, you, you mentioned Descartes there, he's come up several times in our conversation, and I think that the, the, the cogito you talk about there, that mm -hmm. I think, therefore I am, is, is, is a massive misstep in all this, in as far as it does, one of the things that we've kind of hovered about in this discussion, which is detach the mind from the body. Mm. And the example of the octopus is a, is, a, is a great kind of grounding example, but it's not just octopuses that have kind of minds that are physically part of their mm. body. We do as well. And I think there is a perennial danger of making the association that, well, humans are clever, 
and um, you know, cleverness is you know, located in the brain. And therefore, what is quintessential about us is the fact that we are thinking beings. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that at the cost of the fact that that thought only ever occurs within an embodied context. Mm-hmm. And so we may come on to discussion of AI in, in the future. I think that's an v- incredibly important point yeah. that you know, processing power and thought and intelligence, I don't think can be discussed meaningfully beyond the wider context, outside the wider context of being embodied. And that is a profoundly theological point because Christian belief is in the resurrection, Mm -hmm. not in some sort of disembodied existence. The Mm -hmm. physical is very important. I've always struck by that little detail at the end of John's Gospel where, you know, Jesus is on the beach and he's having a fish supper with his friends. And that's a kind of almost a, a message for uh, an image of, of, of what true communion is. It's mm-hmm. not disembodied. It's not just free will or intellects that don't exist in any kind of material format. Mm-hmm. It's embodied. It's physical. That's human. Yeah. So as, as, a, as a Christian, or are Christians committed to the idea that the brain and the mind are separate things? Can we reduce mind activity to brain chemicals and, and neurons? I think that second question is much more direct to Phil than me. I, I would say that you'll get I a shall variety. I'll ask you that in a moment, Phil. You'll get a variety of Christians who, yeah. who have, have a view on this. I mean, you know, I, I would like to meet the Christian who doesn't think the mind is somehow dependent on the brain because mm-hmm. that's that's going to be a hell of an argument they're going yeah. to need to make there. But it, but but again, it's this important point about um, if you just. I mean, Phil talks about it at the beginning of the book. If we just reduce the mind just to the brain, again, what about all this? Mm-hmm. What about every the, the wider context in which we live? Fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, this point about the our minds and any mind being embodied is crucial. I mean, it, you know, even at the the very sort of basic biochemical sense mm-hmm. you know our thoughts and our feelings are influenced by hormones coming from around the body it's mm-hmm. um it's a chemical system so absolutely it's embodied but then even at the more abstract sense there's a very strong argument that the kind of thinking we have is mm-hmm. predicated on the kind of bodies we have that we believe we can do certain things because we we know that our bodies can move in in certain ways and that we can't do other Mm -hmm. things and so you know if we think about that in terms of for example a bird um you know it will have different ways of conceptualizing the world by virtue of the fact that it can fly um the dolphin will have a different conception of the world by virtue of the fact that it has a particular kind of body in a particular kind of environment where gravity for example doesn't really feature Mm -hmm. strongly so that embodiment is absolutely central clearly to the way we conceptualize the world and that's what minds do they build representations in some sense of the world in which they operate and use those representations to make decisions yeah so would you say then that nobody no being no mind whether animal or or human is perceiving reality as it actually is but simply constructing an idea a story almost about what's going on in front of their eyes oh they absolutely have to and you know one of the things that science has shown increasingly is how much of the physical world is invisible literally Mm. to us that we you know we didn't know about x-rays until the end of the 19th century um and then we started to find also we found cosmic rays and you know we now believe or some people believe that there is this stuff called dark matter that we can't 
you know, see or interact with. Um, there's whole swathes of what you might call reality that, you know, we, we, we aren't sensitive to. But I think actually this comes down to a more profound point, which is about meaning. Yeah. Because we, we said a little while ago about how, you know, there's a notion that religion is about meaning and science is about the physical world. But actually, ultimately, uh, this isn't a, a sort of territorial grab. But if science cannot say anything about the construction of meaning, then there's a very important part of experience it's missing. Yeah. And one thing I, I argue about is that, uh, I, I argue in the book, is that minds are also about the construction of meaning. And by that, I mean, you know, even at the very simple level that minds and, and bodies are, um, have evolved to take notice of some things and to ignore others. Mm. And those things that it takes notice of are the things that presumably are most central to the persistence and the survival of, of the animal. Um, so um, that, in a way, is a construction of meaning in that it's assigning value to some inputs coming from the environment and not to others. And one can argue that this, that, that this is the beginning of a, you know, a system of constructing value that really, again, there, there should be continuity between that process happening in an ant or in a slime mold and our own notion of, you know, there are things that we choose yeah. to value and to take notice of and things we choose not to. Fantastic. We're going to move on in the final section to talk about the future of the mind and whether human minds are going to be joined by robots. It sounds a bit like the plot of The Terminator, maybe it is, but we're going to talk about that. Nick, in just the next minute, have you got anything to say to build on what Phil was saying? So, just really interested. Um, what I particularly pick up on Phil's answer, most of which I agree on, is the word constructed meaning. Um, would you say that minds construct meaning or detect meaning? Because my, 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 my sense is that if minds exist within certain physical spaces, they are constrained in terms of what they are able to do. They can't construct meaning out of nothing. They are, as it were, bounded and limited by the context in which they find themselves. And that the mind of various different species actually detects meaning for that creature in that circumstance rather than constructs it. Do you see what I mean? I, yeah, I do. I, I guess I would argue that constructed is maybe the, the, the best word, but constructed in evolutionary terms. Um, and I think this is, this is one reason why I think what's often this thing that's often said about scientists, the Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg said that the, the more we understand about the universe, the more pointless it seems, the more meaningless, if you like, it seems. And this is a very common thing for scientists to, 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 you know, to suggest. And it seems to me that it's a category error, that the notion that somehow we find that, that there is you know, intrinsic meaning in the universe, um, like there's dark matter in the universe, um, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Meaning is something that, uh, that, that is constructed by minds. That's, that's why they are minds. It's why they exist. And so I think that you know, we, we, that's where we need to locate meaning, not some abstract thing in the universe. And we will locate this conversation on the other side of the break and we really are now into into territory that nobody expected uh, we're talking here at the big conversation about what it means to be human and can science and religion or octopi decide that for us my guests are philip ball and nick spencer and we'll be back for the final and fascinating part of this conversation after the short break 
Welcome back to part three of The Big Conversation. It's been an amazing chat so far, and today we are discussing what it means to be human. Can science and religion answer that question for us? My guests today have been and still are Nick Spencer and Philip Ball. And if you don't mind, we're going to continue talking about the mind. Previously, we were talking about the idea of meaning and is it uh, created, is it detected, is meaning architecture or is it archaeology and Nick you were about to jump in and uh... it, it was only actually a, a, a small kind of supportive comment in response to Phil's point quoting Stephen Weinberg about the more we understand the universe the more it seems to be pointless or some people say meaningless I'm always interested if people say that what does pointed mm-hmm. look like what mm-hmm. does meaningful look like I mean if this is totally pointless as far as you're concerned. this is totally meaningless I, I just don't understand what would then persuade you that something was meaningful mm-hmm. does it just does that is it simply simply a temporal thing that it has to go on forever and ever and ever mm-hmm. it was more, more more of a question I don't particularly consider you know the, the creation of which I'm a part to be pointless and yeah. meaningless although sometimes it can seem like that. yeah and uh, Phil you say in your book that a mind seeks what is meaningful to it in the universe so in that respect, then, is any worldview fair game as long as it's functional? Uh, do you mean in terms of the kinds of minds that can exist? Or? No, I simply mean within, within human terms, if a mind seeks what is meaningful to it, does that mean that we do simply create our own meaning and whatever truth, whatever meaning we create, is that fair game as long as it fits that oh you know we are at the risk of sounding exceptionalist we are complicated in ways that it's very hard to find in other creatures and partly because uh, of of the complexity of our culture and you know those sorts of questions seem to me to be so much cultural questions and part of that the fact that we have those complex cultures is that the one thing that we do seem to have that it's harder to find in the same sense in other creatures is language mm. um, and language is about so many things but part of what language is about is the construct is the imagination mm-hmm. is the fact that we it allows us to project our own imaginations if you like into other people mm. to convey things and to have interactions of a sort that it's very hard to see in other creatures so i think you know it, p- perhaps the answer is to be found in that seemingly pretty unique aspect of the human mind yeah okay nick talk more about meaning being <laughs> because I, I i think you're right on that i think we don't we don't decide that we want to be loved unconditionally. We discover it and we notice these things by their absence, don't we? We, we know we want to be loved unconditionally when we feel rejected. We mm. know we want our lives to be full of purpose when it seems as though life's going nowhere. So mm. can you just talk more about that? From a theological point of view, you would argue that you know, um, if the creation is uh, made by God, but made in inverted commas, all the usual caveats apply um there is an intrinsic meaning underlying it um from a human point of view that meaning is found in embodied existences that are sacrificial and loving Mm -hmm. um now very interesting to know what the meaning would of that creation would be for a bat or for an octopus and that's a a question i'm i'm pretty agnostic on 
Um, but I would say that whereas, you know, it's eminently possible for humans to find uh, meaning and purpose in any wide range of different activities and indeed belief systems, I would want to say that ultimate meaning and certainly kind of ultimate meaning that, that, that satisfies us in a, in, a, in a profound way is located in, in, in relationships and in relationships of sacrifice, generosity, love, and, and so on and so forth. We do construct those in the sense that, you know, we are free people, free persons that engage with one another in a multitude of complex different ways. And we're not simply on kind of strict kind of um, railroads of which, you know, deterministic paths. Mm. But nonetheless, I think it is, you know, interesting how many different, not just religious, but, you know, worldviews across human history have found ultimate meaning and mm. satisfaction in, in what you might call relational integrity or, mm. or, or, or love, for want mm. of a better word. But certainly what matters to human beings is not simply matter. What matters to human minds lies in uh, an array of directions, Phil. Well, I, I think to pick up on, on what Nick was talking about, a biological position or an evolutionary position on that, you, you might say, is that um, we are one of the kinds of creatures that is very social. Mm -hmm. And there is an argument that actually a big part of what has driven our particular kind of cognition is that we, we, we have these complex social structures we're not unique in that and you can find some of these kinds of um, uh, propensities certainly in other primates but that you know our minds have evolved to be minds that can navigate social mm -hmm. situations mm -hmm. that that's because because of the nature of how we live in contrast for example to octopuses yeah. which are very solitary creatures mm -hmm. and what's one of the interesting things about octopuses is that they have this uh, what seems to be a complexity of cognition mm. that doesn't obviously seem to have been driven by the needs of social interaction. Mm. So what's that about? Why yeah. do they have these complex minds if, if it's not, if it hasn't been driven by, you know, societal yeah. <laughs> interactions? We don't know. And there's, some, there's something I want to talk about sci-fi because in the 1960s, all these sort of slightly uh, creepy sci-fi uh, series were out and some of those things that they predicted have now been fulfilled perhaps in a self-fulfilling self prophecy type of way but what about the future we've got things like AI and all of that and it seems to be accelerating quite quickly so Phil what does the future look like how how sci-fi might the future be how how much of you know, Philip K. Dick might become a lived reality. Well, when we think about that question, I mean, obviously, everyone's talking about AI at the moment, and that, you know, is a, a really interesting area to look at. But we tend also to think of technological developments and, you know, w w what devices we'll have. But I think one of the areas that is becoming really sci-fi already is to do with our own flesh and blood, with, mm. our, with our own bodies. What is happening in, in biotechnologies is really quite extraordinary. Mm. I'll give you a personal um, example Please of that do. I have had made from a little piece of my arm something that could reasonably be called a second brain um, so there you go it's it's a it's it was very small 
I say was because it no longer is living, um, uh, but it, it, it was so it was about the size of a dried pea. Um, but it was brain-like in that it was made, as I say, a piece of my arm biopsy with tissue was taken. It's it's basically skin. Those cells were transformed back into a stem cell-like state mm -hmm. from which they could, in principle, develop into any tissue type in the body. And then they were encouraged to grow into neurons. And the neurons, as they grew, organized themselves into a brain-like structure in a dish. It wasn't perfectly brain-like. It had some of the characteristics of what you'd expect in an embryonic brain at that sort of stage of growth, um, but not perfectly because it didn't have the rest of, the, of, of a body around it. But there it was. And, you know, I, I have pictures of it. And this, I still find this, you know, literally mind-boggling. But yeah. this is the kind of thing that we can now do. And one could imagine, and, you know, it's getting more and more the case, one could imagine getting better at that technology perhaps finding ways to give it a blood supply so that it can continue growing like a brain. What is the nature of that entity? Yeah. Does it have consciousness in it? What does it even mean to be an isolated, you know, a brain in a vat? Is a, an old philosophical yeah. uh, construct for thinking about, yeah. you know, the mind and how it works. But now we can actually make something like it. So what sort of possibilities, what sort of questions, ethical and even yeah. theological, does that sort of capability open up? And again, you're talking really as the... Victorian novelists wrote there was this paranoia obviously around the supernatural and, and, and science and how those two things related but again these this is where this is where we are so for you then Phil I want to get you Nick to respond to something in just a moment but for you then Phil is it possible would you say within your mind um, that at some point in the future we will have something like Skynet coming online we will have it is possible that robots could become sentient. There's no physical law that seems to forbid such a thing. But I, I say that only because we actually don't understand what consciousness is. There is no accepted theory of consciousness or, or sentience. We're not even agreed, really, on, on what those words mean. Um, so, you know, there, we can't rule that out. I think um, there's also no reason to believe that all you need to do in order to create something that's sentient like that is to make it bigger. That, you know, the, the bigger and better our mm. uh, current AI systems become, uh, suddenly you'll get to a threshold and they will become sentient. That's what often happens mm -hmm. in, you know, in sci-fi portrayals. And there's no reason to think that that's the case. And I think actually there's something more interesting that is likely to happen and is already starting to happen with the AI that we, we have today. That you know, if you think about it as something that's happening within the space of possible minds, there's no reason why the trajectory it's taking has to somehow head towards human territory, mm. which is what we've always assumed somehow it can be going somewhere else entirely, somewhere yeah. maybe towards octopuses or somewhere probably yeah. somewhere quite different, that there's a kind of cognition there that we don't yet know about. Mm. And perhaps even, we would talk about consciousness or sentience as being a single thing that we have more or less of, but I suspect that it's not a single thing or a, a simple thing, that it probably has, uh, you know, it, it's a multifaceted thing and that there might be kinds of consciousnesses yeah. that we don't yet know about. So I think that's the perhaps more interesting way to think about the way I, AI is going, rather than thinking about at what point does it become human-like. Yeah, okay. Should that happen, though, Nick, what challenges would that offer to the Christian worldview, the idea of uh, 
again, humans being made in the image of, of God. Presumably, we wouldn't be able to simply say, well, this toaster is made in the image of God. Mm. I, I think the challenge here is to human responsibility rather than to human dignity, if I can put it this way. We automatically get in that kind of defensive Well, If technology develops in this certain way, what will it mean about us? What will it mean about the image of God? Well, um, I, I, get, I'm, I'm not, I don't get particularly anxious about that just because something else is developing in a certain direction doesn't necessarily change the nature of who I am. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a, a conception of dignity that is entirely predicated on comparison, and that's mm -hmm. not, not very healthy. I think the challenge is human responsibility. I think the risk here, if people automatically kind of gravitate to the what if these things are going to you know, take us over and dominate us. Well, I think the bigger risk is what happens if these things are used by human actors who are malign mm. and want to deceive other human actors. Mm. And I think one of the concerns, I mean, you know, just in, in, in recent weeks, this has been, this has been voiced by a very high-profile resignation from, um, from Google and from a, a letter to, I don't know what it was, the Times by 70 or 80 experts in AI commenting about the fact that there is some kind of almost inadvertent arms race going on here where different companies daren't take their foot off the accelerator of AI for fear that you know, the market will be cornered by, by the other company. That is a profoundly unhealthy approach to developing what could be an enormously um, uh, uh, powerful technology. So I think the main threat is not to our, our dignity, it's to our responsibility to one another. Yeah. Okay. And you talk, uh, Phil, you talk about what it means to have a mind and you have managed to sort of reduce it to the idea of aboutness. There is something it is like to be that thing. So do you have any concept of what it would be like to be a sentient toaster or um, an alien or a ghost? Because obviously the moment we start talking about mind space, it does open up these What's, what seem like sci-fi novels, but actually are now part of neuroscience and the discussion therein. So what any kind of inkling as to what it would be like, the aboutness of these non-human? Simply, I'm afraid not. Okay. Um, I mean, this comes back to the, you know, the famous um, article by Thomas Nagel, philosopher of, you know, what, what it means to be a bat. Yeah. And, you know, he's saying that, that there is you know, no way we can, we, all we can really do is to imagine what, what would it be like to have sonar and to fly about. But of course, we're imagining it from the human mind that there's, you know, this is the, the big challenge. In, in thinking about mind that we are trapped within one and we have no obvious way of, you know, of, of, of getting beyond that. Having said that, it's not um, inconceivable that technologies may extend that, that, you know, there's no reason why, for example, it may not be possible to connect mm. mind, to connect your mind with my, with mine. And there are people working. I mean, uh, Elon Musk's company Neuralink is is working on uh, whether it's getting anywhere or not is, is less clear. But in principle, it may be, you know, you can imagine some kind of device that allows access to our, our thought processes. And it may be that, you know, that will sort of broaden our, our notion of, of, you know, what, what this can be. But I think it's also, um, you can also sort of think about this from the broader view of the, the organism itself. We're able, for example, to make 
so-called chimeric embryos that are a mixture of human cells and those of another animal. Uh, monkeys, for example, mm. embryos of this sort have been made. We don't know what that sort of, we don't know that what the nature of an organism like that would be at the moment. It's not clear that it could develop into a, an actual organism, but it's by no means clear either that that would be impossible. We know that chimeric organisms that are a mixture of the cells of actually different species are viable that they will be able to grow into i mean it has been done into mm. you know creatures that, that 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 are alive and there's no reason to think that we're special in that regard so you know it, it would be it would certainly be deemed and quite rightly be deemed unethical to do that to make a human animal hybrid in that sense but there's no biological reason why we couldn't so I think in some ways, I think that, again, it's this it, it's the biological rather than the technological that is raising these sort of possibilities of where the boundaries of humankind are and how do we define where humanity or humankind or humanness begins and ends. Yeah. And you were, you're nodding away to that, Nick. You agree yeah, I mean, with I that? Think it, I think I think it's fascinating. Uh, you know, I think all of us around the table, most people watching, will concur with the point that you know just because you should just because you can doesn't mean you should yeah um and it, it underlies to me i mean two things have particularly underlied to me in, in this conversation the broader conversation of, of of what it is to be a human one is that you can't have these conversations without um grounding them in a serious ethical approach to why one is doing this um now i suspect Again, I'd be interested to hear Phil's opinion on this. That is a question in some form that might might be asked by some other animals. Mm. But I think we ask ourselves that in an absolutely central, intrinsic way to who we are, mm -hmm. wanting to know why and whether it is a good, whether we are, whether we are pursuing a good. So that ethical reflection, that mm. sense of the should, is central to who we are. But also imagination as well, which has kept on coming mm. up in this in, in, in this conversation. You know. Phil was talking about in the previous section about how we don't just respond as algorithms. No complex mm. animal just responds as an algorithm. You have to have that fluidity and adaptability. And one of the lines in Phil's book is that, you know, our intelligence is particularly fluid. Mm -hmm. It's unusually fluid. And that means being able to imagine ourselves into things that don't exist. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely quintessential to our ability to navigate the world and operate with one another. And it will be absolutely central in terms of our ethical navigation of this technological development so critical to who we are is the need not just the capacity but the need to reflect ethically on the good of what we do and the ability to engage imaginatively with that fantastic this has been an amazing discussion thanks for letting me be privy to this chaps and we've talked about science and religion we've talked about the areas of convergence and the areas of divergence and we've concluded i think definitively that it's not simply a very very good thing against a very very bad thing it's not tribal war that's great let me give you a thought experiment then just to end with let's say that aliens like independence day do land at some point in the next uh, 100 years and before they destroy humanity they want to know and they want to ask you to specifically what does it mean to be human? So we're not asking for theories now. We're asking you, Nick, and you, Phil. What does it mean to be human? You first, Nick. If that question means what does it mean to be human distinctly and as in different from other, uh, other species, um, other forms of life, I would guess I would say concretely it is 
Um, it's probably eating with somebody. Not just the process of consuming food, but the sociality and the openness and the physicality of sharing a meal. Roger Scruton, the conservative philosopher, was, was very good on this, about how, you know, for humans, eating is not simply a matter of, of, of consumption and getting stuff inside. It is a profoundly social, relational process. It's a form, to slip into theological language, of communion. I think that is quintessentially human. Fantastic. And, well, you know, you've said it for me, Nick, it, because I, that was exactly what I would say. It's lived social experience. I think what we too easily fall into is expecting that biology in particular is going to ask, answer that question that, you know, it will say this is what he, uh, the human is. And everything we have discovered uh, in biology makes that less and less probable. It dissolves the boundaries rather than uh, brings them into focus. We're not going to find the answer there. Mm. I think it is absolutely in lived experience where the answer lies. Well, well, I think we've done it. I think we have, as I hope we would, definitively answer the question of what it means to be human thank you so much for watching the big conversation my guests today have been nick spencer and philip ball you might have your own views on what it means to be human but certainly we've had some good ideas today and i hope you don't mind Well, I hope you enjoyed that fascinating discussion between atheist, science writer and broadcaster Philip Ball and Christian author and senior fellow at Theos, Nick Spencer, which was moderated by longtime listener to Unbelievable and now first-time host, comedian and writer Andy Kind. But what did you think? As usual, you can get in touch via email that's unbelievable at premier.org.uk and you can leave a comment on Facebook, which is our page, facebook.com forward slash Premier Unbelievable. And you can tweet us at Unbelievable FE. However, there's something extra special we'd like you to do with your feedback this time, which is to let us know what you thought in our brief survey accompanying this episode of The Big Conversation. It's multi-choice and very quick. If you're listening on podcast, then you'll find the link in the show notes. Or if you're watching the video, then you'll also find the link to the survey below it there as well. So please let us know who you found most persuasive and whether your mind was changed in any way and maybe even what do you think about the prospect of having a second brain. And as I mentioned before, if you want to get your hands on the ebook edition of Nick Spencer's other appearance on The Big Conversation where he debated atheist philosopher Steven Pinker on science, humanism and faith, as well as getting access to hours of bonus material across all five seasons of The Big Conversation, then sign up at The Big Conversation show. And as if that wasn't enough of a reason to sign up, you will also get access to new releases of The Big Conversation a whole week early. That's right, if you sign up then we will email you exclusive advance access to new episodes. And on that note, as promised, here is a look at what is coming next in this season of The Big Conversation. The mind and brain are connected, but the scientific data doesn't enable you to establish the nature of that connection or the relationship. Just because science can't demonstrate that physical processes and mental processes are the same thing, that in and of itself doesn't 
give you any evidence that that's not the case either. Some people talk about seeing deceased relatives and communicating with them. This idea of floating up out of your body and watching things happen and being able to describe it afterwards, that could be formed in your imaginative mind. Conscious experience and brain processes are two fundamentally different things. I wonder if we're talking Would about... Would you like me to go out for a bit? You guys seem really happy. <laughs> That was Christian apologist and former neuroscientist Sharon Dirks debating with another new guest to the big conversation, atheist philosopher Emily Qureshi Hurst from Oxford University. The topic is whether or not the nature of minds, brains, consciousness and near-death experiences point beyond the material world to an afterlife. And as I'm sure you could tell, they really get stuck into this one. This episode will be released on the 28th of July, but you can watch it a week early from the 21st of July instead when you register. So for all of those reasons, head on over to thebigconversation.show to sign up there. Well, that's all the time we've got for this week. So do join us again next week for Unbelievable, the show that gets you thinking. Thank you.